You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Borden. And today we are diving into the why surrounding equine gastric ulcer syndrome. Um, we, after our, our episode with Dr. Arno Berners, we had, uh, a few people reach out wanting to know even more about, uh, equine gastric ulcer, ulcer syndrome. And it's for sure a topic that even after our recording with Arno, like I, I know we've been thinking a lot about, and even just considering like some of the staples we walk into, like what are some of the things that we can be doing and why exactly are these ulcers so prevalent in our modern, um, world. So, uh, we thought of there could be no one better to uh, reach out to and to have on the the show than uh, Dr. Ben Sykes and uh, Nicole will uh, read his bio in a moment, but for sure a world leader, uh, a great speaker, knows his stuff through and through. And uh, yeah, we're recording this at around eight o'clock uh, on a, a nice Monday evening. And like, it was a long day and maybe I wasn't the most excited to do this recording, but as soon as we got uh, Ben on uh on the the line here and he started talking like i i couldn't shut up so uh, i apologize for all the questions you're going to hear from me but for sure fascinating episode and i'll pass it over to nicole really appreciate the true confessions here we're getting to (laughs) i i was excited to to talk to you so that's on you anyway Uh, we did have a fantastic conversation tonight with Dr. Sykes. Um, Dr. Sykes has been a horse veterinarian for over 25 years and a board specialist in equine internal medicine for 18 years. Uh, his research is focused primarily on gastrointestinal diseases in the horse and in particular equine gastric ulcer syndrome. He's the lead author of the 2015 European College of Equine Internal Medicine consensus statement on gastric ulcer equine gastric ulcer syndrome in adult horses, as well as numerous book chapters and peer-reviewed papers. Dr. Sykes speaks regularly at equine conferences around the world, and he's currently an associate professor at Massey University in New Zealand. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. We're so excited to have you and to continue our discussion on gastric ulcers. So I'll kick it off here. Um, Equine gastric ulcers are often sort of lumped together, but there's a growing body of evidence indicating that there are two prevalent forms that present quite differently and require unique management approaches. Can you highlight some of the differences between equine glandular gastric disease and equine squamous gastric disease? Yeah, absolutely. So squamous disease is the one we've kind of known about for the longest. You know, we've known about it for 20 plus years. Lots of research, lots of data on it, lots of understanding. And really at its simplest, it's acid splashing up from the bottom part of the stomach where it's made, splashing up to the top part of the stomach where it doesn't really belong. The top part of the stomach's not meant to have acid getting um, or getting acid exposure. And so due to a variety of factors, really the big ones being the, the amount that we exercise and the time that we exercise and the type of diet we eat, um, we get effectively what is a chemical burn. Um, on our squamous mucosa from that acid splash. Glandular disease is very different, um, and it's really probably only the last 10 years that we've really started to separate them out and talk about it as a different disease, but it's really clear now that they're completely different diseases, and what we know about one, we can't translate over to the other. Glandular is much more of a disease similar to human ulcers. Um, in humans, it's caused by uh, bacteria uh, or drugs like non-steroidal drugs. Certainly, non-steroid drugs can play a role in horses, but they're not the major driver. We don't really have evidence for bacteria being the cause in horses. 
So we're sort of left with a similar disease to human ulcers um, without having a really clear cause. What is reasonably obvious, though, or reasonably clear is that stress plays quite a big role in glandular disease. So stress in terms of behavioural stress seems to be much more important than it is for glandular disease for glandular disease than it is for squamous disease. So, um, but yeah, ultimately we talk about them now almost as effectively two separate diseases rather than saying the horse has ulcers. We will say that it either has squamous ulcers or glandular ulcers. Interesting. And in terms of uh, diagnosing glandular versus squamous, is the only way to do that really to to scope them, or are there any sort of other in terms of symptoms or other ways that it presents, or is it purely like you actually need to get in there and take a look at uh, where the ulcers are forming? It's a little bit of both. Um, scoping has a lot of advantages. Scoping allows us to confirm whether the horse has gastric ulcers in in general. So um, what we're learning from, say, Sue Dyson's work that a lot of people will have seen um, on, on social media with regards to the pain ethogram and lameness, what we see is actually a lot of crossover with what we see with people describing, particularly in sports horses, um, as the common symptoms of ulcers as well. So I think scoping is really important because it allows us to start separating out not just, you know, the types of disease, but whether it actually has ulcers as its main problem or whether these other things that Sue has shown such as lameness and saddle fit, which mimic ulcers, are, are potentially the other cause. So that's that's probably a starting point. It then allows us to separate squamous and glandular disease. And it actually gives us some indication also, particularly for squamous disease, of maybe what the key drivers are. We see different distributions of disease depending on the, the different underlying cause. So they're all interrelated, but um, you know, we certainly did see different distributions, and that's going to help us, particularly in the prevention phase, of focusing where we're going to put our prevention. That said, there are some differences um, in clinical signs. So horses with squamous disease most commonly will present uh, the most common presentations, unexplained weight loss, uh, poor, poor appetite and, you know, changes in eating behaviour. That's not to say that every horse has that, but it's the thing that we see most commonly. Whereas glandular disease, we tend to see much more uh, associated with behavioural changes. And so changes to behaviour under riding, during saddling up and those sorts of things. So the answer is kind of a little bit of both. Um, you know, there are times when we can step in and say, well, look, you know, particularly in our high performance horse population, the horse goes off its food, um, then, you know, squamous disease is going to be pretty high on our list. When we get to the general behavioural aspects, then, um, you know, it's much more important we have gastroscopy to work through, confirm our diagnosis and separate out our squamous from our glandular as well. Interesting. And, um, not to put you on the spot here, but just uh, as you're talking, something I was thinking about, uh, just thinking about like the evolution of horses and thinking about like, hundreds of thousands of years ago, like, do you think that like horses mostly being a grazing animal and occasionally as this prey animal, they need, may need to sprint away and may need to exercise at a high rate to you know get away from a predator. Like, do you think that ulcers were as prevalent, you know, a couple hundred years ago of the squamous variety? So that splashing uh, acid, do you think it was as prevalent back then as it is now or do you think some other things are factoring in so maybe the nutrition changes that we see today or it, it's kind of all of the above we've done some work where we looked at a feral horse population and compared it compared it to a domesticated horse population going through an abattoir in the uk and what we showed was is that both squamous and glandular disease were fairly rare in the feral horse population and we saw them both increased both in the in the domesticated horse population so that you know certainly fits that these are both diseases of domestication. 
Um, it, it, it's quite variable though. You know, there was a recent study looking at horses in Iceland and the horses in Iceland actually in the wild had a very high rate or at pasture had a very high rate of squamous disease when they brought them in and, you know, really optimised their management, they were able to reduce that quite dramatically. But it's certainly, if we look at the main driving factors, um, it's, it is very much that role of domestication and particularly diet for squamous disease that we've changed a lot for these horses that is the major driving factor. Yes, horses in the wild run, but they tend to only run for fairly short periods of time when they absolutely have to um, in terms of, you know, escaping, escaping um, a predator or something like that. And we know that for squamous disease, the relationship with exercise is not really a relationship about how hard you exercise. You know, anything at a trot or above is going to increase the risk pretty much the same. It's how long you exercise for. So, and, you know, around about 30, 40 minutes a day on average is kind of the marker where we start seeing a big change in the risk of disease. So if we go back to the question about wild horses, they don't run that much during any given day um, in, in the wild. They tend to just walk from place to place. They might run occasionally, but it's it's the duration of exercise that's the main driver there for squamous disease, among other dietary factors as well. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, the feral horse population research that's really that's really really fascinating. It's always interesting to compare back to, you know, some sort of quote unquote baseline, right? Um, and then with respect to the prevalence of these conditions, like, do we have a sense of like truly how prevalent they are? In maybe a sport horse population or another population you may have studied? Yeah, so it really depends on which population you're looking at and, and the diseases as well. Squamous disease, the, 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 the more exercise the horses do, the more carbohydrate they eat in the diet, the less roughage, the greater their increase of risk. What does that translate to? Um, it, it is very management dependent. Um, I spent some time in Finland, worked with a lot of European sports horses, exceptionally well managed. We actually saw squamous disease quite rarely in that population. Um, the, the management had brought it largely under control. Historically, we would have said our sports horse population, our medium to high performing sports horse population, 50 to 70% of them would have squamous disease. But I think we're bringing that down. I think over time, we've got better and better at managing these horses and we've reduced that. And there's actually not a lot of studies um, looking at prevalences in sports horse populations with excellent management. You know, Nearly all the studies go back to 20 years ago when we were just starting to understand this disease and we hadn't put all these interventions in. So we often see these numbers, you know, 50, 70% of horses um, bandied around for squamous disease. It's not that simple. It really does depend on the individual horse and the management that it's under. But we still see it and we certainly still see it. The higher the performing horse, the higher the, not so much the intensity, but the duration of exercise, we still see squamous disease being an important disease. And so when we get across to our endurance horses, high-performance thoroughbred racehorses, you know, we get up to prevalences of over 90% in those populations, wow. um, you know, untreated populations. For our glandular disease, it's really variable. There's not this fairly direct relationship. So, you know, for squamous, there's a fairly direct relationship. The more intense those factors are, the more likely you are to have disease. Glandular disease, I think of as much more as a horse-level horse disease. And so what we see is individual horses predisposed, individual breeds, particularly warm blood seem to be predisposed to having glandular disease. And then we see it vary from population to population. Varies, you know, in sports horse population, probably from around 40 to 60%, um, you know, for actively competing horses would be about where we would, you know, we'd estimate glandular disease to be at this stage. That's really fascinating. I, 
I'm curious, you mentioned um, observing and studying some horses that were under what, what you called, you know, really good management. Um, I'm wondering if you could dissect that a little bit and, and help us um, think a little bit more about what, what types of things are critical for reducing the risk, at least of, of the squamous gastric disease um, in sport horses. What are the kinds of things um, in terms of management that, that would help for pre- prevention and also preventing it from reoccurring in a horse that, that did have, um, that did struggle with that at some point? Yeah, so the, I, I consider the big three to be the amount of carbohydrate in the diet, the roughage and how it's fed, amount and how it's fed, and and the exercise and the duration of exercise and the timing of exercise. And so if we start with the last one and we look at exercise, there's two things that we consider. So one is the cumulative duration of exercise that happens over, say, a week. Um, and, you know, that's where that 30, 40 minutes of exercise starts becoming significant per day. So we might exercise 60 minutes one day. That's the same as 30 minutes every um, every day. And so it's like 60 minutes every second day versus 30 minutes every day. The reason why that's relevant is that that duration is effectively what happens is when the horse exercises, it squeezes the abdominal muscles and it lifts the acid up. And so it just lifts the acid up from the bottom part of the stomach up onto the squamous mucosa, which is a little bit more dorsal in the stomach. And because it's a chemical burn, the longer we do that for, the more likely we are to get a burn. And so a very simple relationship to the more we exercise, the greater the risk of squamous disease. And as, as I said, it's not about intensity because we know that that acid exposure is the same um, whether you're doing a trot or a gallop. And so that the intensity doesn't matter, it's the duration that's the really important thing. And, and that's certainly something we try to influence when we talk about prevention because for example, if we can take our cool down and take it from being a trot, take it back to a walk, then all of a sudden we reduce that exposure event. And so we think about those sorts of things in terms of preventative strategies. Timing's a really important one as well. So contrary to popular belief, horses don't spend their whole day eating and all night eating as well. What they tend to do is they consume 70 odd percent of their roughage intake during the day. And about 10 o'clock at night, they dramatically reduce the amount of time they spend eating. A lot of horses will still pick away but they go from spending most of their time eating to 20% of their time eating. When that happens, the same thing happens. The acid, I think of it as a tide, the acid starts to swell up because it's not being constantly pushed down by the food and by the saliva and bicarbonate that's buffering that. And so that longer duration of exposure happens overnight. But the other thing is, is that overnight, the horse's stomach starts to empty out. So in the morning, instead of having nice, nice big ball of food that's there that stops the acid from splashing around, and the acid going up sort of in an orderly manner when the horse exercises, the acid just splashes around like soup. And so exercising first thing in the mornings, a much higher risk activity for squamous disease than exercising in the afternoon after the horse has been normally naturally eating all day. And so one of our main prevention strategies is wherever possible, we switch these horses to afternoon exercise, making sure they've had access to roughage all day to fill up that normal natural defense mechanism. When we think about roughage, it's about the quantity of roughage and the timing of roughage. So ideally, we want horses eating at least 2% of their body weight per day. So, uh, you know, a normal horse, a normal 500 kilo, 1100 pound horse, we want it eating 10 kilos of hay um, or 22 pounds of roughage a day. Pasture is really variable. Pasture sometimes protects and sometimes doesn't. The lusher pasture is, the less likely it is to be protective. So we have to think of roughage not just as, as pasture and being out in the paddock, but also hay itself. 
And so the amount of hay is going to be relevant. And then again, the timing of the hay. We want the horses to be eating hay ideally immediately before exercise because that's the main risk factor. Um, and then the other thing we want to do with horses is we want them to try and encourage them to eat all night and then not spend as much time naturally fasting overnight and spend more time grazing, which is going to keep the acid load in their stomach down. And we can do that with things like slow feeders, um, multiple hay nets and strategies like that that encourage the horse to spend a greater duration eating and that causes less acid exposure onto the, onto the squamous mucosa of the stomach. The other thing we can do, you know, traditionally we would take our lucerne or our alfalfa hay and we would feed that in the with the breakfast and with the evening meal. Instead of feeding it at the meal time, we can split that out and use it much more strategically. So we can take the morning feed and instead of feeding it at feed time, feed it as early as possible. First thing in the morning, go out, get that horse eating to break that fasting cycle and restore the normal protective mechanisms. And for the afternoon um, hay, instead of feeding it at mealtime, feed it pre feed it before exercise because that's when it's going to do give you your most bang for your buck. So these little changes can make a really big difference to risk at effectively zero cost because we're using the same amount of food, we're just using it more strategically. The last one in there is the amount of carbohydrate in the diet. And historically, that's been a really big focus. People have talked about, you know, my horse can't have carbs um, because it gets ulcers. I think it's really important to look at a couple of things. One is the original validation work used really high amounts of carbohydrate that would be very, very rarely feed a modern sports horse. Um, when we look at the amount of carbohydrate in a modern sports horse's diet, it's way lower than that. What are we aiming for? We're aiming for less than a gram per kilogram per mil, probably ideally less than half of that, half a gram per kilogram per mil. And so for most of our horses, that's not a problem. They simply don't get to that level of carbohydrate. Um, but for the higher performing horses that do, that require higher caloric feeds, something as simple as feeding three times a day instead of twice a day can, can help we, you know, can help us address that as a, as its own factor. What we do know is if you only address carbohydrates, it only has a very modest effect on protection. You've really got to think about those three dominant factors. And there's some other things that go on as well, but you've got to think about the amount of carbohydrate per day and per meal the amount of roughage and when it's fed, and then the total amount of exercise and when the horse is doing that exercise. Really, really interesting. It's some great action points there for the listeners to to consider and to try to work into their own programs. Um, like with the roughage, do you have a sense of how much is needed and sort of when it should be given before exercise? So do they need like a huge amount or can a couple of handfuls be enough to act as a bit of a buffer? And when should should it be right before exercise, or is it nice, good to have a little bit of a of a gap there? Yeah, it's a great question. We we tend to think of this being quite a, a static state that you know it goes in, sits around, and then it sort of comes out. But it's really dynamic. It's this constant flow of acid being made and pushing up, and then bicarbonate coming in and pushing down. And I, I really think of it as a tide that goes up and down, um, depending on those factors. And exercise plays a role in that as well. So in terms of amount, um, it, it does depend on when we're exercising, but if we're exercising in the afternoon and we're just topping up, we know even as little as sort of 300 grams, um, three to 500 grams, so, a, you know, a pound of food makes a difference. It starts to introduce more buffer in there and it changes the pH depending on where we're looking at the pH. And so it doesn't have to be a huge amount. One or two biscuits of hay or flakes of hay um, in the pre-exercise period can make a really big difference in terms of the amount of buffering we're getting into that horse's stomach. Um, and really immediately before exercise, you know, the recommendation I usually go with is you take it, 
you feed it while you're tacking the horse up, let the horse finish, and then, you know, get your saddle on, get your bridle on, and out you go, go and ride your horse. The other thing I think that's really important when we talk about pre-exercise roughage is, but we don't really talk about this very much, is it's not just the amount, but the type of roughage that they get as well. So if we think as the main protective mechanisms, the, the saliva and the bicarbonate coming down, the more we chew, the more saliva we make. And what we know is, is that horses chew approximately twice as much eating hay as they do eating something like chaff or one of these, you know, fiber pellets or something like that. So instead of feeding alfalfa cubes, ideally we should be feeding alfalfa hay. Um, and that's going to increase the amount of chewing, that's going to increase the amount of bicarbonate we make and increase the protective amount. The other thing that's really important is not just the type of hay in terms of the chewing, but when it gets into the stomach, we need it to form this ball that has this normal protective mechanism. And so if we take chaff and we put it with water, it makes soup, and that's going to splash around. If you think about it very intuitively, it just splashes around. If we take hay and we mix it with water, we get this big, firm, squodgy thing, and it's much harder for the water to move around. So we think about that in terms of acid. Soup, the acid's going to splash around freely. When we've got this nice, netty ball, it's much harder for the acid to push up and splash up onto the thing. So you asked a question before, Tim, about, you know, domestication and modern practices that change these sorts of things. And I think one of the big ones that really does impact is we've moved away from feeding long stem roughage to these horses in, in these things to feeding short stem roughage. And we still, you know, alfalfa is great. Alfalfa has its own benefits, but alfalfa hay and particularly kind of stalky alfalfa hay is going to give our stomach a lot more protection than alfalfa cubes or alfalfa pellets or something like that because of the chewing and because of the kind of mat it's going to form. Awesome. No, that's really, really interesting. And it, I think it's always helpful to understand the history, right? And to understand like as some of these practices have been made and they were made for certain reasons, but maybe we didn't fully understand like some of the consequences of, of these actions, right? So I think it's always interesting to have that sort of historical um, perspective. Uh, one of the final questions uh, we wanted to ask with respect to like how persistent does you know the acid splashing need to be for ulcers to actually develop? So but uh, let's say like usually you have a really good management system and for whatever reason, you know, someone forgets or they make a mistake and one day they go out and the horse exercises in the morning on an empty stomach and sort of all the stars align in something and it's not a good situation for the horse. Like can one day start the ulcer cycle or how long does it take to develop? It's another great question because it sort of comes up a lot. So the we know from a research setting, if you induce ulcers by effectively starving the horses and taking their food away, it's about 48 hours before we start to see squamous lesions develop. So um, it's it's a significant amount of time. And that's really relevant to gastroscopy. People are, are concerned. And, you know, it's reasonable for people to have concerns, but people are concerned that that 16-hour um, fasting period for gastroscopy is the horse going to develop ulcers? And the answer is no, they don't. Um, it's not long enough duration of exposure for it to occur. And we partly know that because we scope lots of horses that have perfectly normal stomachs. Um, and if it was an induction model, we would see that, you know, much more consistently. So it's kind of, you know, let's say 48 hours is about the window where we start to see um, the disease. So if we have a bad day, um, we get snowstormed in, which you guys have been dealing with a lot recently, something to that effect. Um, that alone is not going to be enough to, to trigger ulcers per se. I mean, it's not what we want for general GI health, but it's not going to be something that triggers ulcers. What we often see, though, is it might trigger the expression of clinical signs that the horse becomes more obvious, um, starts showing some symptoms. 
And the way I think of that is it's like the, the, the tires on your car. And so we go to a show and we get to the show and we look at the tires on our car and we go, oh no, my tires are bald. And the question is, did they get bald driving the hour from home to the show or did they get bald driving around and around at home and going in and out of town and then you only noticed them when you went to the show because you slipped because it was icy or something like that. And I think of ulcers as the same way. We certainly see horses more likely to express them when they're put under these these events, you know, showing, travel, those sorts of things. But that's not where the ulcers typically develop. The ulcers develop, it's the wear and tear at home and the normal daily routine that's the primary driver. It might be that when they go to a show, their threshold gets lower, so they're much more likely to show it because they've got other things that are triggering them. Um, but the ulcers haven't sort of magically appeared overnight. There's something that's, you know, built up over time at home. But they can occur really quickly. We've just done some work looking at horses coming off a meprazole in a racetrack setting. And basically what we saw in, in that particular study was that they developed their ulcers back within three days and back to baseline within mm. three days. So 24 hours, we had those horses um, for 24 hours and it made no difference. They had exactly the same amount of ulcers 24 hours off a meprazole. Uh, it was about 30 hours off a of meprazole. But when we took it out to three days, by three days, they, you know, they've got the lesions back to the basically baseline. So it's that 48, 72 hour window that if we really put them under uh, intensive stresses, we can develop, you know, very significant lesions very, very quickly. But that first 24 hour window is, is relatively, um, you know, relatively safe for us, particularly obviously coming off a of meprazole, we're going to get some protection for that initial period. But even without that, we, we get we get a little bit of grace to start and then we see it um but the induction can be very quick after that that's a a really great illustration of of a theme that sort of keeps coming up uh with a lot of the experts that we talk to in that a lot of these things are treatable and there's there's great treatments out there but if you don't actually address the root causes and the 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 patterns that you had in place in the first place that that caused the problem then you're not you're never really going to be able to fully treat you know anything especially something like ulcers that like you said can recur so quickly yeah i mean the definition of insanity is doing something repeatedly and expecting <laughs> a different result and if we don't change the management we're not going to change the outcome and, and i think you know, squamous disease particularly is a really good example of that. Um, if, if we can't make those changes or we don't make those changes, then we, it's very hard to impact on the disease. You know, the disease is going to reoccur. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's there for it's there for a reason in, in a sense. Sure. So we have one last question for you, and it's a question that we like to ask all of our guests. It's a little bit a little bit different, um, and that is, if you could speak directly to a horse and the horse was able to understand you, what would you want to say? Eat more hay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be well received. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. There's so much knowledge to take away from that episode and also some really great recommendations, right? And it's always fascinating, at least for me, to hear about the history of, you know, different conditions and different management practices to understand why ulcers are so prevalent today versus in feral populations or, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago when horses maybe or when they did live a, a different type of life maybe the, the prevalence wasn't nearly as high. So yeah, really interesting to hear that perspective to understand that component of it. And I think also just looking towards the future of the sport, right? Like I think 
uh, many of our listeners are in the sport horse world or at least, you know, interested in horse sports, maybe watch them at home on TV or whatever. And just, I think understanding like some of the constraints we do place on these horses and some of the big asks that we um, have for them with respect to what they have, how we manage them and what they actually have to go and, and do while they're performing. So I think anything we can take from this episode, try to apply to our own management programs to put the horses in a better position, I think is uh, very worthwhile. Yeah, I have to say, I think the most surprising thing for me uh, from this conversation was um, the the concept that it, the amount of work versus the um, intensity of work for horses and their in their exercise has such a major impact. Um, and I I think that's such a I, I don't know I don't know why that really surprised me, but I think that what it reminded me of in terms of managing horses, but especially sport horses is that we're constantly weighing the pros of cons of every decision that we're making. You know, we want to, we want the horse to be fit and we want them to be, you know, ready to compete in certain circumstances and, and under certain pressures and stresses. Uh, but we obviously want them to be healthy above all else and, you know, happy and and mentally wanting to do the job. So I think that, it's just another factor that we it's absolutely crucial to have in mind when you're thinking about the management of your horses but also understanding you know the ups and downs and then the the acts that you can take to uh to prevent instead of get to the point of treatment or you know worrying about exactly how much you're working the horse and what time of day and all of that so um I think it's it's just a reminder that every episode we do, everything is so deeply intertwined and it takes a lot of care and thought to really um, you know, figure out how to how to properly manage our horses. And you know, we just have to keep keep learning, keep listening, and keep keep trying. <laughs> uh so with that, that uplifting message, um, that's a wrap for today. You can find the links to today's guests uh, and the, our show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. Please follow us on whatever app you're using to listen in to this episode today. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Sport Horse Series. Uh, on your podcast app, like and review us. It makes it easier for other people to find us. And you can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. And here's to keeping your sport horses happy and healthy. Mm-hmm.